We're going to get started with the last talk uh, of, ever of the day. Um, and so um, the talk uh, this afternoon is going to be by Ian Bogus, who many of us uh, know, who we have to thank for putting this all together for us today. Um, and so I think what we're going to see at the end of the day is in some ways a little bit different from what we've seen before. I'm curious to see how Ian takes us forward into some of the ideas that he developed in his alien phenomenology talk. So this will be um, the last talk of the day, then we'll have some questions, and then uh, Barbara is actually going to wrap it up for us uh, after that. So without further ado, okay. Ian. Is this okay? Can you hear me well enough? Until the mic? Yeah. yeah. Great. All right. So uh, Levi set me up uh, without even knowing it. And Levi. And we decided that uh, this proves that uh, Stephen Shapiro is correct. That the world is a relational network and we have tapped into it. We'll save that for the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In his blog turned best-selling humor book, Stuff White, White People Like, Christian Lander explains that whenever possible, white people prefer not to own a television. They do so, says Lander, precisely so that they can report indignantly about the refusal to own a set when water cooler conversation turns to last night's Lost or American Idol. <laughs> Despite the white person's natural aversion to television, and here it's probably important to clarify that when Lander says white people, he really means the liberal upper middle class, latte swilling, Volvo driving variety. There is one, there's one type of program they do like, the kind that is critically acclaimed, low-rated, shown on premium cable, and available as a DVD box set. The apotheosis of such programming, suggests Lander, is The Wire, David Simon's five-series, 60-episode survey of the Baltimore drug scene, seen through the eyes of its participants, dealers, politicians, kingpins, junkies, public defenders, cops. Here's how Lander summarized The Wire's, the wire's role in contemporary culture, writing on the eve of the show's series finale in 2008. For the past three years, whenever you say The Wire, white people are required to respond by saying, it's the best show on television. <laughs> Try it the next time you see a white person. Though now they may say, it was the best show on television. So why do they love it so much? It comes down to authenticity. A long time ago, someone started a rumor that when The Wire is on TV, actual police wires go quiet because all the dealers are watching the show. Though this is not true, it seems plausible enough to white people and has imbued the show with the needed authenticity to be deemed acceptable. <laughs> the Wire takes its place beside The Sopranos, Mad Men, and Simon's new HBO series, Treme. These shows offer just the right dose of what we casually, infuriatingly call human experience. You can almost hear it, can't you? The critic, the scholar, the latte swiller, writing, speaking, or even better blogging about how The Wire or Mad Men offers an incisive exploration of the murky depths of human experience. Foucault, Lacan, and Deleuze might make an appearance serving their role as the mirepoix of high culture criticism. It doesn't make it into Lander's blog or book, but we might as well add critical theory as another specimen in his informal sociology. Lander and Lacan notwithstanding, the appeal of TV shows like The Wire rests entirely on their ability to tell us something about ourselves, to use another critical shorthand that has somehow risen above its inherent triteness. Mid-grade dealer D'Angelo Barksdale, Detective James McNulty, Yvonne Barksdale, Police Lieutenant Cedric Daniels, 
Stevedore Frank Sobotka, mayoral hopeful Tommy Carsetti, newspaper editor Gus Haynes, these are the objects of concern for the drug scene. These are the actants that form the network of its operation. Despite the show's rhetoric of inclusiveness and complexity, others are summarily ignored. The Maryland Transit Authority bus that trundles through the Broadway East neighborhood, the synthetic morphine derivative, which forms the type of heroin powder, heroin powder addicts freebase, Colt 45, the firearm, and Colt 45, the malt liquor. Yet when people, white or otherwise, talk about the wire, they discuss it as an example of realism. Here, realism means two things. First, it suggests the truthful or round or otherwise complex characters that make the show rise above its presumably vapid brethren. Like all satire, Lander's send-up of white people works because it's grounded in truth. The authenticity of the show's dealers, cops, longshoremen, city councilmen, middle school students, and journalists is established through a set of cinematic rhetorics, including their anonymity as actors, their racial diversity, their ordinary appearance, uh, and perhaps most importantly, the almost impossibly inscrutable intricacy of their actions and relations, a feature that makes television smart in a Stephen Johnson, everything bad is good for you sort of way. Second, it silently clarifies the type of realism at work in the series. This is not the ontological realism of process philosophy or science or even transcendentalism, but the representational realism of cinema and photography. Social realism, we usually call it, following the influence of writers like Dickens and Hardy, artists like Reginald Marsh and Walker Evans, and filmmakers like Tony Richardson and Mike Lee. By definition, social realism adopts the nature-culture split that the tour critiques in We Have Never Been Modern, the cultural aspects of reality enjoying relief against the background domain of nature. As a creative work, The Wire is thus incapable of giving its viewers any sensation of the constituent parts of its subject, unless those parts are mediated by the actions of its human agents. Part of the problem, we might argue, is philosophical. David Simon's creative ontogeny from journalist to screenwriter makes correlationism an inevitability. He's in the business of telling people stories. But another part may be material. Can we even imagine a dramatic serial that delves deeply into the compression heat of a diesel engine combustion chamber? or the manner by which corn or sugar additives increase the alcoholic content of malt, or the dissolution of heroin in water atop the concave surface of a spoon. As The Wire does, similarly, for social and uh, psychological motivations. Even at best, uh, the result might resemble a Saturday Night Live sketch gone wrong, mutual <laughs> of Omaha's wild kingpin. <laughs> In stuff white people like, Christian Lander suggests American Idol as a natural inverse of The Wire, a show whose empty spectacle infuriates the Patagonia set. But if we're after a deeper respect for all objects within a domain, then I'd suggest a different antithesis. It's another cable network show, and it also takes place in Baltimore. And it also deals with the rough and tumble, tenuous relationships between the complex constituent parts of structures that otherwise recede into the background oblivious. I'm referring, of course, to Ace of Cakes. <laughs> the show tracks baker Duff Goldman, whose shop Charm City Cakes sits right smack in the middle of the blighted neighborhoods of Oliver and Greenmount West, where The Wire takes place. 
Two-tenths of a mile up North Gay Street from Duff's Bakery sits the abandoned American brewery, an overgrown lot behind which serves as a frequent location for drug deals in the show. Walk the same distance in the other direction, and you'll reach the stretch of Bethel Street between Federal and Oliver that bears the cinder block wall graffito Bodymore Myrtleland, an image that graces the show's opening credits. It's an area that has enjoyed some reversal of fortune in recent years, the urban decay that followed the Baltimore riot of 1968, having been partly slowly replaced by redeveloped row houses and bohemian artist culture. And unlike Bodymore, Charm City is one of Baltimore's official nicknames. Goldman's adoption of the name for a specialty bakery so close to the heart of Simon's fictionalized drug-addled murder land provides more irony than I could possibly muster with words or pictures. Inside, Duff wields other kinds of white powder to make cakes, custom cakes. The kind that might be shaped like a swamp boat or feature a family of sculpted candy burrow owls. As with all reality programming, a good deal of personality and challenge drives the show's narrative flow. In Ace of Cakes case, schedules and uh, mishaps usually provide the drama, with many more cake orders coming in and seem reasonable to complete in the week, and with uh, material experiments in fondant, cake, and dowel, resulting in inevitable structural integrity challenges. In the end, of course, the cakes always go out, their customers awestruck and grateful for the fruit of Duff and Cruz labor, which, at a minimum rate of $1,000 per cake, might be a more profitable racket than the heroin trade down the block. <laughs> the Wire tries to take apart the institutional complexities of bureaucratic experience. It draws from every aspect of every variety of human motivation and behavior, and in so doing delivers a subtle, harrowing critique of the fine line between the tragic and the banal. Things go wrong slowly, with a whimper. Ace of Cakes does the opposite. <laughs> it deletes human rationales as much as possible, forcing birthdays and weddings and retirements to serve as mere stages for the more interesting and important process of cake construction. In one episode, Duff's crew constructs a cake in the form of the Gugsta, a 9th century Viking ship named for the farm in Norway where it was excavated in 1880. It had been commissioned as a wedding cake for two Viking reenactors who planned their wedding as part of a week-long Viking festival, kind of a, a medieval fair, I suppose. The couple's story offers a necessary setup, but from there, ship and cake themselves take center stage, and the show offers a systematic examination of the construction of both. The Gokstead was a warship fashioned of oak through clinker building, a method of assembly in which planks overlap and connect <coughs> the tops along a joint. After a frame is assembled, the battens of oak would have been steam bent to fit the internal shape of the ship. Joints called lands were fashioned by means of joggling, the cutting of triangular recesses into the frame to secure a fit for the plank. At 23 meters long, the Gokstead is very large indeed. It's the largest vessel on display at the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo. It boasted steerage access for 32 oarsmen, although wooden discs could be secured into the holes to, present, to protect the men in battle and to keep out water. While Charm City's cake version of the Gokstad doesn't mirror the shipbuilding techniques of the Viking Age, the end product is a convincing replica, complete with hull, oars, oar covers, mast, and sail. The hull itself was carved from layered, frosting-bound cake but the clinker planking was applied via strips of fondant or buttercream, which were then frosted to match the appearance of oak. 
To satisfy the viewer's expectation for human drama, the Charm City staff drives the cape to Ohio, where the baked dog stud is revealed to its would-be warrior captains amid the weird mirth of the festival, and they cut into this enormous dagger. But the couple, who must have paid thousands of dollars for the end product, miss out on the process of witnessing its creation. While its eating relegates the cake to its purportedly rightful place as ceremonial foodstuff, the show flattens the ontological seas, as it were. Flanker built oak planks and fondant, keel, tall, and sponge cake, white-topped waves and spread frosting, or stay and cookie, all take their places next to each other as objects of equivalent existence. But more so, the television production reveals each component to have equal potential interest on its own terms. Clinker planks prove equally, perhaps even more fascinating, than completed warships. The layers of frosted cake from which the firmament of hull, once carved from reticular blocks, proves no less enduring than the candy molded ores, or for that matter, the tar sealant that would have waterproofed the original Dockstead's hull. Duff further adds to the valid stuff of baking by introducing techniques from carpentry, sculpture, and the plastic arts. Power tools are regularly featured on episodes of Ace of Cakes, for example, to rough out the supporting frame and stand for the Millennium Falcon cake. Here, too, no object remains less motivating than every other. Each pipe, window, and exhaust vent finds its place alongside cockpit, Wookiee, or indeed the very Star Wars universe in which these objects find fictional resonance. But if David Simon errs in revealing only the human aspects of his subject, Duff Goldman errs in only offering a tiny morsel, as it were, of the rich ontological underbelly of its creations. If it's the food itself we're hungry for, we'll have to hold out for Atlanta local Alton Brown's Good Eats. Some compare Brown's approach to that of science educators Mr. Wizard or Bill Nye, because his show explores the science and technology of food with special attention paid to the chemical processes at work and cooking and the technical ups and downs of different equipment. While Brown doesn't limit himself to sweets like Duff does, he has featured cake baking on the show, offering us a convenient opportunity for parallelism or, or even layering. <laughs> oh, thanks. Alton's <laughs> uh, uh, good, good Eats Pound Cake offers not only a really tasty treat, but also a set of insights into the entities and processes that comprise them. For example, when constructing a batter, it's common to use the creaming method, an approach to ingredient mixing that is said to increase the lightness and tenderness of the resulting cake. Put simply, it goes like this. Beat fat, beat sugar with fat, add eggs, alternately add dry wet ingredients in that way. The first two steps produce tiny air bubbles in the batter. The greater these are in consistency and number, the lighter and fluffier the resulting cake will be. As for the dry ingredients, usually flour, baking soda, and salt, if these are mixed together evenly in advance, then the salt and leavener disperses evenly throughout the batter, which will allow it to rise more evenly when baked. Ever the kitchen uh, gadget geek, for the best distribution, Alton recommends a heavy stand mixer. His has flames in the side. <laughs> Most creaming method instructions offer vague advice, like beat butter until light and fluffy. But what counts as light and fluffy exactly? Here's where Brown's method is unique. For every situation of this kind, he offers an approach. In this case, the abstraction light and fluffiness gets its own delineation, a concept I've elsewhere described as unit operation. 
Okay, this is uh, Alton now. Okay, there I go using those vague terms of light and fluffy. Uh, here's when to stop. When you're no longer able to see sugar granules, but you can still feel them if you rub a bit of the cream fat between your fingers. Although you can overcream, and you'll know that you have when your mixture moves from a smooth and homogeneous mixture to something akin to curdled milk. Inadequate aeration, i.e. undercreaming, is far more common. As a rule of thumb, I like to see the volume of the fat increase by a third. Uh, Brown's other tips likewise identify the unseen stuff of cooker. For one, he suggests mixing the eggs separately rather than adding them one at a time to the mix, as most recipes call for, since doing so emulsifies the water-heavy egg whites with the yolks, reducing the amount of liquid introduced into the fats. Furthermore, the type of fat makes a difference. Alton recommends slow-churn European butters, since their smaller butterfat crystals produce smaller bubbles and therefore a finer texture of cake. And while you're at it, opt for cake flour over all-purpose flour, the, fi the finer flour particle size Lower protein level and bleaching all serve to tenderize and normalize the cake's final texture. Alton brownish cakery is a flat ontology. The cake exists, to be sure. So does the KitchenAid five quart stand mixer, the preheated oven, the mixing bowl, and the awaiting gullet. But so do the sugars, the flour granules, the butterfat crystals, the leavener, the gas bubbles, and they do not merely exist, they exist equally. And Good Eats proves that their flat existence entails equal levels of potential work. The relationship between fat crystal and sugar, leavener and batter, is just as fundamental as that between cake and mouth. The dispersion of gases that rises is surely interesting and useful as it relates to the end product, namely a light and fluffy cake. But Good Eats also presents the gas bubbles and the flour granules as their own end product, worthy of consideration, scrutiny, and even awe. Awe is a complex concept in philosophy. It might not first be found in Plato, but it's there that it finds one of its two most famous mentions. In the dialogue Theaetetus, Socrates recounts a conversation with the young orphan who gives the thesis title. Theodorus had recommended that his student Theaetetus uh, talk to Socrates, and uh, that Socrates talk to him as he was a promising pupil. And furthermore, he was one who uh, rather resembled Socrates uh, in uh, Theodorus' mind. And the dialogue leads us to believe that this is uh, uh, not a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Socrates asks Theodorus to help him figure out what knowledge is. The young man, who has just finished rubbing himself down with oil, is caught somewhat by surprise as he passes the two old men with uh, newly anointed friends. So he and his buddies are out, you know, anointing, and, uh, and there's annoying Socrates. He offers that he has no idea how to answer such a question. But, of course, Socrates persists. The just musters a salvo that knowledge is just perception. As is common with Socratic interlocutors, Theodotus is now stuck, his mentor Theodorus having committed him to more than a passing blow, as it turns out. Socrates recounts ad nauseum a litany of logical fallacies, a review of Homer, a detour through Protagoras, not to mention the extensive digression about midwifery that Socrates musters as a way of persuading the idea that the latter did indeed have a definition of knowledge seeking exit from the brain. Now, after going through a great many puzzles meant to trace the edges of knowledge, as is, is typical in Socratic dialogues, the idea just admits, no, indeed, it is extraordinary how they set me wondering whatever they can be. Sometimes I get quite dizzy with thinking of them. Socrates responds with what will become an oft-quoted quip. That shows that Theodorus was not wrong in his estimate of your nature. The sense of wonder is the mark of the philosopher. Philosophy, indeed, has no other origin. 
and he was a good genealogist who made Iris the daughter of Thaumas. In Greek mythology, Iris is the messenger who couples earth and the heavens, connecting humanity to the gods. As for the bit about genealogy, Socrates is referring to Hesiod, who explains that Iris was the daughter of Thaumas, the sea god, and Electra, an air nymph. Iris is also the goddess of the rainbow, which too connects earth and heaven through air. But this digression about Iris and Thaumas only makes sense in Greek, inconveniently. The word Theaetetus uses in his admission of dizziness is Thaumazdo, I wonder. The name of Thaumas, the god, is also the word for wonder, Thauma. Wonder has two senses, then. For one, it can suggest awe or marvel, the kind one might experience in worship or astonishment. But for another, it can mean puzzlement or logical perplexity. From a philosophical perspective, it is tempting to conclude that the second meaning is what Socrates and Plato have in mind. Philosophy as a process of reason through which the mysterious is brought down to earth, like Iris. This is certain how most philosophers have understood Socrates' wonder, particularly when it's read through Aristotle, who more explicitly argues that wonder catalyzes understanding. But there's another way to understand these two meanings in the context of Theaetetus, particularly since the dialogue ends without resolution, its interlocutors satisfied to conclude that they have been reminded of the need to have humility about the knowledge they do not possess, which is another common theme, of course. When seen in this way, the rainbow daughter of wonder offers not just a road that allows traversal between earth and heaven, but also one that demands pause for its own sake. This is not one of those irreconcilable Derridian suspensions, either. It's a truly simultaneous condition without deferral. Let's keep the rainbow road analogy for a moment. Recently, I, was, uh, uh, I had the, the good fortune of uh, traversing the Hana Highway, which runs across the lush windward side of Maui between Kahului and Hana, and then continues through the island's dry, volcanic south edge around the Haleakala Crater. It is a tourist destination unto itself, and far more so than the sleepy town of Hana that is its apparent destination. The average speed on this road is 15 miles per hour, not by regulation, but because it's winding curves, narrow passes, and numerous overhangs, bridges, and waterfalls demand slowness. Yet, this narrow winding road is also the only means of passage by land from the business and transit center of Maui to the small town of Hana. This is a subtly different example compared to the scenic route, which offers an aesthetically appealing but more indirect path from place to place. It's true, for example, that traveling the beachfront Pacific Coast Highway between Los Angeles and San Francisco offers a picturesque alternative to Interstate 5, whose most memorable feature is the stench of industrial cattle slaughterhouses between Kalinga and Los Banos. But that route also has at least an hour and a half travel time. The, the Hana Highway, by contrast, is both route and destination. Like the object of philosophy, is both puzzle to be decoded and object to be admired. Likewise, the leavener's gases can excite the passions as much as can the cake they cause to rise. The fondant planks deserve ceremony as much as the wedding their mock goth stat punctuates. The heroin spoon demands as much intrigue as the institutional dysfunctions that intersect it. A second well-known uh, appearance of wonder comes from Francis Bacon, who extends Aristotle's catalyzing wonder through two metaphors. Wonder, says Bacon, is both the seed of knowledge and also broken knowledge. The first of these accounts is more or less identical, I think, to Aristotle's version. But the latter is more complex. Bacon calls admiration, admiratio in Latin, the Latin equivalent of wonder, 
that which maintains a distance, as in the case of the necessary distance between man and the knowledge of God. The 18th century philosopher, diplomat, and monarchist Joseph-Marie Comte de Mestre suggests, and quote, without the least doubt in his words, that Bacon's concept is best understood as a science attached to nothing, or a knowledge without knowledge. This is Mestre's words. While our wonder can be transformed partly into knowledge, for Bacon, the road toward knowledge of creation remains impassable. The embrace of this brokenness partly explain, explains Bacon's interest in the aphorism, I think, which executes a performance of discontinuity, like rocks blocking Iris' highway. Uh, Mestre explains things elegantly here. As for the proof that one would like to draw from the idea of God, it is permitted to regard it as a veritable joke, since we can have no idea of God. There remains the Bible, which makes man a theist, as a serenette makes a bird a musician. Knowledge may intersect or surround ideas and objects, but it never permeates them, just as the mechanical device used to train canaries doesn't really turn them into sopranos. Understood in this way, wonder would seem to be quite the opposite of its earlier Aristotelian catalyst. Bacon likens it to arrest or incapacity. Wonder causes, this is Bacon, wonder causes astonishment, or an immovable posture of the body, casting up of the eyes to the heaven and lifting up of the hands. For astonishment as it caused by the fixing of the mind upon one object of cogitation, whereby it doth not spatiate and transcur, as it useth, for in wonder the spirits fly not as in fear, but only settle, and are made less apt to move. As for the casting up of the eyes and the lifting up of the hands, it is a kind of appeal to the deity, which is the author by power and providence of strange wonders. I love Bacon. <laughs> the notion of fundamental separation between objects can be found in Harmon's brand of object-oriented ontology, and in that light, we might wish to fuse Bacon's and Plato's accounts of wonder <laughs> while simultaneously secularizing them from both their Greek and Christian contents. In both cases, things become suggestive of knowledge with some sort of puzzlement initiating a drive towards investigation. But simultaneously, the Platonic, Aristotelian, and Baconian concepts of wonder also underscore the irreconcilable separations between all objects. Chasms we have no desire or hope of bridging, not through philosophy, not through theism, not through science. This is not necessarily because some knowledge remains out of reach, as Socrates and Bacon would have it, but because the very pursuit of that knowledge is metaphysically undesirable. <laughs> Mesmer's quip about a science attached to nothing is thus more than mere provocation, I think. The act of wonder invites a detachment from ordinary logics, of which human logics are but a one. It's a necessary act in the method that I've been calling alien phenomenology. As Howard Parsons puts it, wonder suggests a breach in the membrane of awareness, a sudden opening in a man's system of established and expected meanings. To wonder is to suspend all trust in one's own logics, be they religion, science, philosophy, custom, or opinion and to subsume entirely in the uniqueness of an object's native logics, flower granule, firearm, civil justice system, longship, fondant. In Harlan's terms, wonder is a sort of allure, perhaps, that force that real objects use to call at one another by enticing and absorbing. As he puts it, allure merely alludes to the object without making its inner life directly present. Wonder, I'd suggest, 
might describe the particular attitude of a lure that can exist between an object and the very concept of objects. If a lure is the separation between objects, then wonder, perhaps, is the separation between objects and a lure itself. Wonder is a way that objects orient. When we approach objects as social relativists, they can only bear interest as products or regulators of human behavior in society. This is how the wire treats cinder blocks, chicken McNuggets, freighter ships, and graffiti. Such things are only interesting when they advance some perspective on human behavior. But the truth is, when we approach objects as scientific naturalists, the same prejudice applies. Sure, the butterfat crystals and the flower protein levels enter the conversation, but only insofar as they facilitate the creation of a better cake, one crafted for human enjoyment. Even though some scientists might try to deny the human centricity of science itself, arguing that it seeks instead to uncover universal truths about the universe, the rhetoric of science is indeed entirely and totally obsessed with human knowledge, human action, and human use. There is no better place to track this phenomenon than in recent debates about science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM education. As the story goes, a globalized economy has put pressure on the United States, which has allowed uh, its scientific leadership to wane. This challenge, we're told, puts America's status as economic and intellectual world leader at risk, as nations like India and China train more scientists and engineers in greater numbers and at greater competence. Since this is science we're talking about, we can cite data. For example, the 2005 National Assessment of Educational Progress reported that 61% of high school seniors achieved basic competence in mathematics, while only 23% performed at a proficient level. The number of jobs that require uh, science and engineering training, we're also told, continues to grow, even as the number of students preparing for these jobs through undergraduate or advanced study is declining. Engineering jobs increased by 159% in the two decade dates ending at the turn of the millennium, but by 2003, 1.3 million such jobs lay dormant or were filled by qualified foreign workers, particularly those from India, China, and Germany. Now, a host of education programs have emerged as a result, most driven by national funding agencies interested in staving off our assured self-destruction. This is all very fatalistic. We have, for example, the For Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology, or FIRST program. Your program is always better if it's an acronym. <laughs> uh, this program runs robotics competitions for, uh, for all age groups, and in fact, the 2010 uh, championships were just held uh, a week ago or so in Atlanta. There's crayons to CAD, a middle school curriculum meant to increase students' awareness of architectural and instruction careers. There's Project Lead the Way, a middle and high school curriculum designed to increase the diversity and number of future engineers and technical professionals. I could list many, many more. Among them, in fact, I might even cite one of the degree programs at this very institution, one in which I actively teach. Here's an excerpt from the degree website. The Bachelor of Science in Computational Media was developed in recognition of computing significant role in communication and expression. The BSCM, see the acronym is always good, curriculum gives students a grasp of the computer as a medium. The technical, the historical, critical, and the applied. Students gain significant hands-on and theoretical knowledge of computing, as well as an understanding of visual design and the history of media. Our graduates are uniquely positioned to 
plan, create, and critique new digital media forms for entertainment, education, and business. Now, it's a well-known fact that most children, when asked the excruciatingly unfair question, what do you want to be when you grow up, respond with answers like bus driver or janitor. Adults tend to recoil from such suggestions, of course, thanks to their low economic and social status. I myself remember drawing an intricate portrait of a garbage truck for a first grade assignment of this sort. I was fascinated, and, and, and indeed perhaps remain fascinated, if I can admit it, by the, the weird magical apparatus that is the garbage truck, with its lumbering and its unusual suburban roar and its pregnant steel drum. But this was during the Cold War, of course, at a private school uh, at which many of the children of Sandia Labs nuclear physicists and rocket sled engineers matriculated. Garbage man was not an appropriate goal. A parent-teacher conference was surely warranted. But mercifully, I opted for a much more sensible career as a video game theorist. Still, even the more acceptable professional goals like astronaut or chef speak less to a child's latent interest in astrophysics or chemistry and more to a state of natural wonder at the alien mystery of objects. But, alas, common wisdom in STEM goals suggests that these moments of childhood opportunity must be captured and exploited. For example, a child whose curiosity is piqued by Honda's humanoid robot Osimo might expect to be deluged with any number of possible next steps on their way to a rewarding and lucrative career in robotics. Whether through books like The Way Things Work, uh, which explain the mechanical innards of objects, or through informal tinkering with the Lego Mindstorms kit, or through formal programs like FIRST Robotics, <coughs> Junior's astonishment is sure to be slowly siphoned out of the tank of wonder which fuels only the pointless propeller of the schoolboy beanie in order to fill the cold tank of the machine of progress, a device connected to the gears of society and culture. So let's not kid ourselves. Scientism is no less correlationist than philosophy. In this sense, science and philosophy are alike in their dealings with wonder. For them, wonder is a void, the opening for a tunnel that leads somewhere more viable. It is a means. For example, I sometimes enjoy the luxury of teaching about the Atari video computer system. It's more than three decades old, this uh, strange computer, and one might face some difficulty justifying such a lesson in today's educational and professional environment. I wonder if I should even be talking about it here. I have many answers to such charges, of course, um, mostly for the press than for students or administrators, but nevertheless, I get asked. Among them, uh, the fact that I make my students learn about the device's silicon components in intricate detail, including the MOS Technology 6502 microprocessor and the custom-designed television interface adapter. They study the operation of these components in order to understand how different video games work, as well as to gain insight in how they were created. And they also learn to program the system for the same reasons, and to investigate the creative possibilities of this, of this computer despite its apparent obsolescence, much in the same way that a photographer might explore the view camera or a poet the Sinclair. The Atari here is dismantled, and new objects present themselves. Microprocessor, RAM, audio-video processor, RF signal encoder, objects allowed to resonate and hum weirdly, like the first grader's garbage truck. But then the mastery of these devices too becomes subject to scrutiny. The 6502 is an antiquated and simplistic microprocessor with limited application in today's computing systems. What are you doing to our children? 
And the TIA, well, it was a custom design chip for this weird computer. It's not used anywhere else. And any knowledge that's gained about its strange way of rendering a television picture line by line bears no particular utility on, say, the Xbox or PlayStation. For this charge, too, there are answers. Answers which redirect the native wonder one experiences in the face of these aggregated transistors to more pragmatic terrain. The 6502, I can argue, is a simple microprocessor that can be easily learned and even mastered. As such, it offers an ideal introduction to assembly coding, a skill one might use when programming a modern microprocessor in machine language, for example, to optimize the performance of inner loops. As for the TIA, it offers an unusual inscriptive demand that forces a designer to consider creativity in the context of material constraints. While a budding programmer is unlikely to find another hardware architecture limited to two 8-bit movable objects per scan line, he or she is quite likely to encounter equally absurd and seemingly arbitrary constraints on modern computing systems. Through logics like this, the Atari shifts its status from garbage truck to humanoid robot. But what is lost in the process? The 6502 microprocessor and TIA graphics chip are ontologically de-emphasized, allowing only a relational role as things in a larger network. The evolution of computing, low-level systems programming, pedagogies of the practice of fundamentals, professional skill development regimens, and so forth. Yet, the 6502 is just as wondrous as the Cake or the Cork or Riverside, California. Not for what it does, but for what it is. We could say the same for far more abstract objects, mustered in the interest of STEM education, too. A recent issue of Forbes featured meditations on your life in 2020, each written by a thought leader from the business and, and, uh, and intellectual communities. Among them was John Maida, formerly of the MIT Media Lab and currently the, the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. Maida has made a career of artistic computation, including a book called Design by Numbers, which was an influential approach to design-minded programming that inspired, among other things, Ben Fry and E.C. Reese's processing project, which they call a software sketchbook for doing interactive visual design and code. In his four contribution, Mida suggested that STEM ought to be expanded to STEAM, the A standing for art. And Mida loves these acronyms. He's just stuck in the of it. Here's, uh, here's Mida. But if technology and the ability to be connected disappear further into the background, what will occupy our foreground? A bit of the humanity we've always valued in the real world. Legislators who are currently fixated on STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math education, as the key to innovation will realize that STEM needs some steam, some art in the equation. We'll witness a return to the integrity of craft, the humanity of authorship, and the rebalancing of our virtual and physical spaces. We'll see a 21st century renaissance in arts and design-centered approaches to making things, where you, the individual, will take center stage in culture and commerce. On the one hand, it's hard to object to Midas' suggestion. Surely, he's right that the STEM obsession seeps partly from the ice flows of a glacial inhumanity. But on the other hand, the addition of art into the mix doesn't particularly enhance the missing focus on things themselves. In Midas' account, art simply becomes a lubricant for science and engineering output, a valve through which its application can be made to reacquaint with human practice. As in the popular reading of Plato and Aristotle, wonder becomes an intentional curiosity, the equivalent of Heideggerian care. But what if the real obstacle to youthful interest in science arises not from a distaste for mathematics or the natural world, 
but from a latent dissatisfaction with the way science melts the shell of wonder around ordinary objects. Science, like philosophy, has assumed that wonder is always a type of puzzlement, an itch meant to be scratched so we can get on with things. But for the child, or for anyone else for that matter, a computer or a robot or a cake or a definite integral is not merely a wellspring for a future possible career, nor even a vessel for play or work or sustenance or measurement. It is an object worthy of consideration for its own sake, like Iris's rainbow suspended between the peak of intrigue and the utility of application. To acknowledge the garbage truck as object is to acknowledge the real that isolates, while refu refusing to hold that it must always connect to any other in a network of relations. Perhaps a solution can be partly found in Mestre's interpretation of Bacon's broken knowledge, the science attached to nothing. This unattached knowledge does not imply that larger systems of thought cannot be applied multiply, but that the subject of broken knowledge also implies an internal systematicity that resists external logics, whether those be physics or metaphysics. The science attached to nothing is the logic of the real object. The series finale of The Wire concludes with a montage depicting the fates of its characters. The names of Bodhi and Lex find themselves newly applied to the graffiti wall memorial, perk down some bruise with his Baltimore Police Department colleagues as they celebrate the Bulti's retirement. Scott Templeton accepts the Pulitzer Prize. Cascades of confetti cover Carsetti as he celebrates victory in the Maryland gubernatorial race. Stan Valchek becomes police commissioner. Uh, Edward Timon middle school student Dookie Weems injects heroin with the Arabic he befriended. Weebay and Chris Parlow buy time in the courtyard of the Maryland State Prison. And life goes on in low-rise housing projects on the waterfront and on the streets. Compare this to the end of the feature film adaptation of the comic book Men in Black in which Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith's characters have spent the entire movie attempting to find and protect the universe, which was revealed to be a small glass orb hanging like a charm from a cat's collar. The film's final sequence, which is revealed to be, uh, sorry, the film's final sequence is uh, 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 comprised of a rapid zoom reminiscent of Charles and Raheem's powers of ten, but accelerated by several factors of ten. We move from the streets of New York out to the city, the continent, the planet, the solar system. Eventually, our galaxy is revealed to exist within a glass sphere in the hand of some alien who wields it in a game of marbles. The concept is right, but the scale is too large and too small all at once. Everything is like the marble universe in Men in Black. Partitioned like so many galaxies, each thing, from leaven or bubble to pound cake, from mathematical operand to robotic companion, from opium poppy to criminal justice system, each demands its own broken knowledge. Weird, tiny totalities simultaneously run their own rules and participate in the dominion of others around them. Each thing remains alien to every other, operationally as well as physically. To wonder is to respect things as things in themselves in this way. In addition then to all the branches of theory and science writ large, we also face the opportunity to produce the philosophies and sciences attached to nothing, to use Mespa's term again. But unlike these old methods, which strive to illuminate, wonder hopes to darken, to isolate, to insulate. Perhaps this is one signal for the future. Instead of roboticists and anthropologists, 
instead of biomedical engineers and medievalists. Perhaps we will find alloy poets, philopestites, and psychologists. <laughs> Perhaps in that world, future versions of the younger me will smile as proud teachers tousle their hair over the garbage trucks they sketch at their grade school desks. Thanks. to the details of, for example, how the Vikings 
drive the planks in yeah. order to build those boats. Uh, and, and when you ask the question about the poetics, I was, I was just trying to think of examples because I'm in literature. Uh, you know, and I think we have this sort of wonderful one sort of sitting there right now, and, and that's that's Moby Dick, um, which you know, because everybody leaves out all the right, the, right, seats right, of logic, right, 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 exactly yeah, what yeah. you were talking about. Right, right. Like, Dickens. Too, how do you right, leaven the bread? Right? Yeah, right? How do you do this? And and and, and in yeah. a sense, in our speed to find out about Melville's quarrel with God, we've forgotten. Yeah, we're always looking for the narrative flow, right? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe these things are there. You know, they're kind of always there under our noses. They're not just there in the real world, but also in, in uh, literature and other representational work. Uh, it's, it's kind of humbling and a little bit disorienting and maybe even disturbing that we just kind of haven't bothered, I think. I mean, you know, we have to some extent, but not really enough. So at the end, you, you, you had this notion about wonder as a darkening force. And I guess, uh, could you speak a little bit more about that? Because it certainly is counter to the way that we normally think of wonder, which is, right. as well, you said at the beginning, this notion of problem solving, right? Yeah, well, if, if the puzzlement is supposed to be illuminating, to like open our eyes, then the natural opposite would be closing. You know, so you, you could think of it as, as a, a, a kind of selective darkening. You know, we're, we're trying to avoid uh, attempting to explain, to undermine something. Uh, it, it may be a little too metaphorical, and I'll admit that uh, I didn't think through it as, as clearly as uh, as I ought to have. But it, it was a nice way to end, wasn't it? <laughs> there was something over here before. Yeah. I was just going to ask this whole question. Uh, you referred to this um, the science of nothing or the knowledge without knowledge, and I was wondering if that's if that's the, the literal French. Uh, do you have, I mean, do you, do you have the French, uh, like, that, that term phrase in mind? Is it, you know, savoir sans savoir? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't remember. I feel have to check. It's, it's yeah. a minor point, but it, it, it's just, it's interesting to consider the way in which it could be constructed. It could be constructed very strongly, like savoir sans savoir. Um, the, the broken, a uh, broken knowledge is, uh, is Bacon's term. So right. therefore we can, we can do that. Yeah, right. that's a good point. Yeah. Check. You're going back to the stylistic issue. Uh, I guess it would be entailed by object oriented ontology, at least a uh, subtracted version. That uh, one, one of the primary challenges, uh, Graham, you talk a lot in your work about uh, your writing that it's uh, vivid. Um, and I, I think also, how, how is it possible to uh, make the uh, domestic object foreign or strange? Uh, and, you know, that, that was somewhat interesting about some of the slides. You make reference to Homer. That you show Homer Simpson's hat. Right. Uh, you combine Bacon and uh, yeah. Plato. Yeah, and you can't, you can't do of, that in your monograph, right? It's an issue there, right? Uh, because, I mean, this really gets to Graham's conception of, uh, of allure. And I think your analysis of the comic or, or the human in a certain way, I forget how exactly you put this, uh, that uh, in, in these sort of aesthetic modalities, the real object. Is somehow uh, alluded to through the uh, yeah. uh, right. through the comic slip up in, in a certain way, and so it's as if the object uh, is doubled and its uh, its essential qualities uh, are suspended. Yeah. Yeah. So how how it would be possible to uh, 
Yeah, and if we kind of connect that to this, this business, this certain idea of carpentry in the way that I've been using that term to mean the, 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 the doing of intellectual work that occurs through the construction of things. Uh, and, and you know, we can construct written and verbal arguments, of course, but surely those are not the only things that we're capable of constructing. Um, what is there that we might be able to partake of? And, and of course, this brings in all sorts of questions about the institutional place of, of thinking and, and productivity in, in and out of the academy. You know, it's can you imagine? Um, can you imagine taking I don't know what your um, your uh, comic your comic book? And sort of saying, well, this is my master work, right? This is the this is the main the main intellectual contribution that I've made, and, and please give me tenure. You know, it's kind of unthinkable, and that's maybe even more thinkable than a lot of other things I could think of, like uh, like Hughes, you know, uh, uh, wood stuff, you know, which which is like just totally off the books right now, which is ridiculous. Like, you know, the, the, why is there no uh, uh, why, why, why does the intellectual uh, uh, bubble stop right before we reach these uh, these other kinds of means of, of, of creation? Uh, so I don't know, but I, I think about this too because when I when I take this stuff and um, and then I, I don't have the pretty strange pictures, which I think are actually doing real philosophical work. They're not just um, I mean not all of them are some of them are just humor, but you know they they, they function rhetorically in a, in a in a deliberate way. And then they get stripped down, and there's no place to put them. And what would I do? Would I sort of put them? Oh, you can have like 50 black and white illustrations in your book. You know, it's, it's just not. Well, the temporal is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and, and the flip side of this would be the you know, which is equally naive, to say, oh well, like the iPad is the future now, and we're just going to put all this stuff in, we move it around, and touch it, and pet it, and and you know, probably both of those ideas are naive. But it does, it is a provocative question. And I don't want to go in like the correlationist or the Derridian type of direction, but there's also this sort of rich question of style uh, in, in uh, object-oriented ontology, this interesting self-referential riddle. I, I don't necessarily think it's a problem, but, but you know, the book or the text or the presentation or the blog entry is an object mm -hmm. alongside of the other objects yeah. that's standing for the objects in certain ways. Right. Uh, so how to think well, no, it's, it's another good point. How, what is it that we're doing? I mean, one of the things I was going to point out this morning, but I sort of I, I wanted to, to get started quickly, was that um, the the conversations that we and others have been having about object-oriented ontology have been uh, largely taking place online. And um, we talked online, all of us, before we'd ever met. I think, you know, Levi and Graham met last night for the first time. Yeah. And they had edited a book together. Uh, <laughs> So it's not mere correspondence, right? Um, but there's also a sense in which, unlike the, the, the so-called digital humanities, which is making a big fuss over doing whatever it is that the digital humanities is doing, um, we're just kind of doing it, right? Like, of course you're using a blog, and so what of it? Like, who cares? You know, it's, it's not a big deal in some way. Um, so you know, there's these, like, these different modes of even drawing attention to that multiplicity of, of, of means of production and, and, and that too is, is a, a maybe a strange ecosystem. Well, this idea of slowing down I think is really interesting because uh, you know, this, this is one of the things that drives me up for blog. You, you know, you say, well, of course we're using blog, what of it? But I mean, there, there's, a, there's a real sense in which the blog disappears in the activity of blogging. And, and yeah, literally you know, the it is, fact yeah. that this relation, you know, they, Graham and I are, are you know, having some sort of uh, intense email exchange or, or uh, 
you know, about some issue or we're going back and forth about uh, an article that's being, that we're editing or, you know, about somebody who's pissing us off or something uh, mm -hmm. along those lines, you know, whatever, uh, it, it, it uh, evaporates in the content, right? It's something that disappears behind the content, but, but it's there, that alien object, and then literally the, the graves that you're talking about uh, are, are all there sustaining yeah. that. Uh, and then, of course, the post itself literally disappears once it falls off the page. Yeah, yeah. 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 but they float around. I'm wondering how this, this this very interesting notion of withdrawal or, or moving into a background could be brought to bear upon the new conception of wondering that, or wonder, excuse me, that I that I hear you posing here. What uh, wonder is darkening? Um, I mean, I think in some ways this is this is actually very simple. This is the, the sort of thing that maybe even kills me. Like, or it's either one of two things: either infantile, or you're um, you like smoking too much herb, and it's one of those. <laughs> and it's that idea that that you know there's all this stuff that's 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 out there in the world. I think I said this at the end of my salsa talk too. There's all this stuff that's out there in the world. It's just kind of, it's just kind of amazing, you know. And like, but we can't say that sort of thing because that's just, you know, it's trite, and we're not, you know, like good Marxists or something, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, so in that respect, you know, it's, it's a combination of slowness, but also, I think you can literally, the withdrawal business of objects is like kind of, kind of, a, you know, a. a a mind bender at first, but then you, if you stop and you sort of you know, begin to actually conceptualize what things actually are, it's, it's just incredibly plausible to me. And I know that that's not a reasonable, uh, like logical argument to make, but this sort of notion of the plausibility of it, you know, that there you are and there's the ocean. Or, or when I went and visited um, Graham in uh, Cairo last year, um, it took me out to the uh, to the American University campus um, on the edge of Cairo, and there was just the desert. And it was like the the really the desert, not like yo, I'm in the desert, or you're in like Palm Springs, you know, and you cool. like for real the desert. Um, and you could call it sublime if you want to, but you know, I think there's something else going on there too, which is just huh, the desert, you know, and then there, there it is. So you know, in some ways, this is just incredibly pragmatic. If I can like dare use that that word, um, it's just that we stopped allowing ourselves to, to do it when we when we. There's something interesting there, though. I mean, you, you say, as good Marxists, we're not supposed to say that. But you know, I'm thinking uh, when Graham, uh, the provost uh, at American University, you wrote a few posts about that. And, and, and that you know, why aren't these seen as, as worthy philosophical topics or, or food? I mean, food is the intersection of, of nature, materiality, uh, gift giving, right, right, and semiotics, yeah. and all these sorts of things. Yet, you know, beyond Levi Strauss's raw, boiled, and cooked, we don't really uh, yeah. have much of a yeah. well-known theory of yeah. food yeah. that organizes the entire right. system. And is it just habit? I mean, you can say, well, it's just habit. You know, and that's yeah. a matter of, of sort of like changing our exercise <laughs> regimen. Yes. So. Um, <coughs> I know that you have your Latour Lidonizer online, which allows people to create a list of these things that are generated by Wikipedia. Right. Um, and the fact that the website you know, uses random photos in the background, so it's not to privilege right. um, certain photos over others. So a two-part question being, um, how important is it to use a Latour Lidonizer versus like looking at the objects in your room to create a list like yours? Um, and what does computation do to help us understand OO better than uh, you know, other other ways might be able to? Yeah. 
Yeah. So just just for those of you who don't follow everything I do, <laughs> this is this is the uh, the Latour Litany generator, which will just uh, sit here and I, sometimes it doesn't work. This way. Reload. Um, uh, generates these lists uh, from uh, from Wikipedia. I don't even know what all these things are, but then you know once they're there, you, you kind of go and, and you see those. Um, and uh, application directory. What, what's the uh, what's the other one? It's um, so now suddenly all the firewalls have been Yeah. Um, uh, what was the what was the other thing you mentioned? It was the uh, yeah, oh, website. Website. on the on the website. Right, right, right. So if you haven't looked at the website because you you emailed me instead asking where this venue went, then uh, these uh, yeah these are being are being generated from. Uh, there's actually a kind of interesting story about this, which I'll tell you over drinks if you want. <laughs> uh, about the, the valid valid images uh, that appear here. So you know, for for me, those are kind of like um, I don't remember what you asked, but I'm going to answer. Just <laughs> uh, these are these are kind of um, they're in some nether world between what I've called oncography and carpentry. You know, they're they're constructed objects that create these I mean lists in some way or aggregates. Um, but they're really simplistic and rudimentary. So I see them as kind of provocations. Uh, you know, what is it when you when you think about the idea of a, of a litany as having philosophical power, and I've been completely persuaded that it does, then you know, a, na a natural question to ask yourself is, well, I wonder like what kind of lists there are. And then you could find some, and you know, I've, I've been doing a bunch of digging looking for lists. You know, Graham's done some of this too. And there's that weird book of lists, that literary list. Yes. Um, so there's stuff around there, but then you might also ask, um, well, what kind of lists do I generate, like shopping lists, or or, 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 or things that aren't really lists but are, are like lists, like you go into the you go into the grocery store with your shopping list and you see all the items on the on the aisle, you know, or um, or uh, you uh, you might generate your your own from Wikipedia, something like that. So maybe it's like kind of a stair stepping or a ratcheting up of, of our expectations, but in a way that they become more familiar. Um, so while I haven't thought so deliberately about this as I'm, as I'm leading on, um, because these things are relatively simple to create, and, and you know, why not try it because I have the capacity to do it, um, I, I imagine that they, maybe they're primers. They're like little priming, like, like you prime a wall when you paint it, not a primer like you read. You know, like they're just setting up this future kind of carpentry that we haven't yet done. There's also a sense in which they're kind of a phenomenological pocket, right? Because uh, right, right. the tradition of uh, traditional epistemology, you don't talk about lists. You talk about the subject and the object, and uh, you know the object. Uh, generally, there's some sort of privileged metaphor or uh, example that's used uh, by all the philosophers. Uh, you know. In Kant, we're always talking about seven plus five equals twelve, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And so there's a way in which um, the uh, the list, especially that that's a brilliant uh, generator there. Uh, the list uh, upsets yeah. the uh, the role of the whole example right. uh, of these effects on the right. Right. One more, I think. So uh, I'm a newcomer to this, so forgive me if this is a, an ignorant question. Uh, but um, I was curious to know about the sort of the, the place of race in this talk. Um, it 
my, my sense, my impression is that with a sort of object-oriented ontology, you want to get away from discussions of race and gender and class well, certain, well, to a certain extent. Away from the, I mean, you know, the race exists just as much as anything. Right, right. But I was, you know, I was, I was interested, like, the way the, the talk began, and you know, the stuff that white people like, um, and how um, there's a sense in which, you know, there's a, the audience is becoming, like, you know, it's a white liberal person who wants authenticity, and that's why they go after that. And it seems like the the solution to that would be to you know um, go after um, be, become have some sense of wonder within the object. And I'm wondering what happens right. what happens to that initial uh, premise upon right. you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so the reason that that's in there, besides the yeah. publication that it provides, which yeah. is always helpful, yeah, um, is you know, manyfold. One being, um, um, I mean, look at look at all this, like a bunch of white guys, and that's kind of philosophy, isn't it? You know, so that's interesting to point to, and it's not something that I think any of us find desirable, but it is um, a, a situation that we're in. But then, on the other hand, we've become, and let me see if I can do this carefully, we've become so obsessed with these issues, race, gender, class, what have you, that. We haven't spent any time thinking about anything else, almost. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's that's not just a, a uh, you know leftist uh, liberal humanist sort of sort of thing either. I think that now that we're you know when when you look at the sciences, for example, and how do you balance the legitimate and important considerations about uh, diversity in engineering, which is something that concerns us at this institution, with the, the problem of letting the microprocessor just be the microprocessor. So you know, this is not a matter of let's throw away the the race question mm -hmm. in order that we can ask about the desert, hmm. but rather just to, to point out that friction that it's there. Um, and also, secondarily, I do think that you know the, the stuff white people like things. It's all this. It's written for um, uh, you know. It's almost like it's completely written for uh, humanist academics. I think right. You know, it's a really scathing critique of our absurd lifestyles, and then we, you know, we kind of prance about talking about how connected we are with the world and how concerned we are with its fate, and it's really all about like, you know, the kind of, out, the kind of activewear that you have on. So, uh, you know, Marcus or no. So I think those are, those are the two things that I had in mind with making that move here. Mm -hmm. But by no means, um, I mean, all of us, I think, have a, a very reported, uh, well-recorded history of um, real political engagement. And that I think can totally coexist with being interested in refrigerators and garbage trucks. Isn't part of the problem with representational realism precisely that it is a cliched version of race? So I, right. I mean, it seems to me that that was kind of what you were alluding to. Yeah, I think that's that. Uh, you know, you watch a show like The uh, <clears throat> like Wire, and uh, that's not really that light. It's an exaggerated and uh, cliched version of that. And, Right, so there would be this dimension in which, uh, yeah. So even 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 race is uh, undermined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was going to turn the, the floor over to Barbara Stafford, but she was left. No, no, five minutes. Okay. Well, I, I, I have. Is there any other questions? Somebody. Uh, I'll ask a question. Um, <laughs> this may be crazy, you know, completely off the wall, but I, in thinking about the possible study and, and, and 
uh, I keep from returning in my mind to examples in literature where there are descriptions of objects which are um, uh, neither undermining or overmining, but uh, seem not useless, but they don't integrate into the narrative. They don't have, in other words, uh, an example might be Joyce's description of water. It's just, it does produce a kind of wonder moment where you, and you don't, you know, it doesn't, you don't try to connect it, it doesn't take you anywhere in the yeah. uh, And there are many examples, I mean, well, Briere is full of them, right. uh, the eraser. I mean, yeah. So, if that's true, and I'm sure we could all come up with lots, would that suggest um, a kind of utopian, and I don't mean that critically or exuberantly, but a, a utopian aspect of who? Because um, we are well, we're being freed from um, precisely race, gender, class for a moment. That's not to say we're being asked to repress or ignore. But it's an interesting question. I see. I see what you mean. Um, the dangerous response would be maybe we need that at least for a while. Um, that um, reorientation, that reset, that maybe we need to be, maybe we need to go culture. Um, that would be the dangerous answer, I suppose. Um, dangerous, relatively speaking. Um, maybe a, a more, if I can kind of stab at a more complex one. Um, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, in, in literary studies, about multitude of readings and the endlessness of interpretation. And it doesn't seem to be a problem to me that we could simultaneously have the reading of Ulysses or whatever, right, that, that excises all the narrative in favor of the stuff. And then just um, Yeah, that's sort of where I was going, yeah. exactly. But, you know, they would both, and like conveniently, we have this nice flat ontology stuff going on. So, you know, the, and this, is, this has always been, I mean, in some ways, uh, literary criticism past 50 years has always been about flat ontology, right? Every every interpretation, every reading is equally valid as long as there's textual evidence and whatnot. So, what do Ulysses video game look like? Yeah, Ulysses video game. That's um, an excellent question to kind of provoke this, really, you have to construct something. This is why this idea of having to construct something is so powerful, because then it's not just a, a kind of a mind game. Uh, you know, would you make it about, uh, you know, a one or multiple characters in you know, travels, or would it be about water and shaving? <laughs> I would kind of rather it be about water and shaving in a certain way. The idea has been born here. Okay. Um, uh, Steve. Okay. I know, I'm not sure I'm right. It's going to say this to you, I guess. The only thing, the most thing I've heard your whole talk, that's probably kind of getting is that yes, my five-year-old daughter is in kindergarten and what she wants to do when she grows up. Her answer has changed, but currently she says she wants to be a computer game designer. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if you have a pair of t-shirts on.